0: The scripture is from Luke 15, 1 and 2, and then 11 through 24. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them.
1: Amen. Would you pray with me as we get started? Jesus, thank you for your story this morning. Story of homecoming, of return, of elaborate celebrations and unexpected grace. Jesus, we hear this story as we sing it, as we gather at the table. Would you just seep into us? Would it confront every false story that we tell ourselves? Would it confront every shadow story that we whisper over ourselves? Would it confront every false picture of you and of the gospel and of ourselves that we have? And as we leave here, would we know ourselves as deeply loved? Would that be our truest, most rooted sense of self? God, speak these words over us in your name. Amen. Amen. Well, welcome everybody. If you're new, my name is Johnny Morrison. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's so good to have you. As we dive in today, I just want to begin with a couple of questions. And the very first question pretty simple What kind of story is the gospel? What kind of story is the gospel? We've been talking about the gospel a lot. We just finished a series in the book of Galatians looking at what the gospel is. And we've said some things about the gospel. We've said that it is a good news story. Gospel comes from the old English word Godspell, which means good story. And we can trace it all the way back to Greek, euangelion, which means good news story. So we know it's a good news story. But what kind of good news story There's a lot of stories with good endings in the world. So what kind of story is the gospel? And there's a lot of different kinds of stories to choose from or to pick from. There's a literary theorist named Joseph Campbell, who you might be familiar with, who said the archetypal story of human history is a story called the hero's journey. His story shows up in culture, shows up in myths, shows up in movies, and it has a simple set of steps that are repeated and reoccurring. Someone from an ordinary life called to adventure, guided by a mentor or a sage. On their adventure, they overcome obstacles, struggles, defeat the enemy, and return home a hero. And Campbell's argument, as you can see, this story showing up again and again, from the myth of Prometheus in Greek mythology, to uh, Harry Potter, to Luke Skywalker, to Frodo Baggins, to Milan, to uh, so many different characters and movies. There's different Plot points, different characters, different cultures, different stories, different fun sidekicks. But fundamentally, everybody goes on a journey to overcome an obstacle, to save the world, and they return home a hero. That's the hero's journey. That's one kind of story that pops up again and again in culture. And some people have even suggested that the gospel is like that. It's a hero's journey. Jesus who leaves his homeland, enters into the world, overcomes difficult obstacles, and then saves the world and returns home a hero. So maybe the gospel is best understood as a hero's journey. Some similarities. Don't know that it quite fits, though. So there's other kinds of stories that we could look at. One that is maybe equally as popular as The Hero's Journey is what we'll call the rom-com. I spent a lot of time in uh, the last couple of weeks researching rom-coms. That's not weird at all. And what I learned, uh, and you could probably see this, is that there is a formula to a good rom-com. You can just Google it, like, how to write a rom-com, which I'm going to do now, because there's lists of instructions for how do you write a good rom Rom-com. And and it says that it's essential that you have these things. You have to have two lovable leads, which all the rom-coms I've seen have two lovable leads, most likely Julia Roberts and Matthew McConaughey. You have to have a meet-cute where they meet in some kind of cute way, which I know that phrase is self-explanatory, but I did not understand what a meet-cute was until I googled, what is a meet-cute? Because the word, if you put it together, can mean so many different things. You have to have a cute way... Of meeting together. There has to be some kind of trouble the relationship falls in, some revelation that a person in this relationship has that leads them to believe they should be together, and then most likely a grand gesture at the end that leads to resolution. And just like the hero's journey, you can see this formula, this kind of story show up in movies again and again, and even works of art again and again. This is the formula of Romeo and Juliet or Much Ado About Nothing to look at Shakespeare. It's the formula of how to lose a guy in 10 days. And it's even the formula of Scott Pilgrim versus the world, a much more modern and kind of like edgy love story. So it's a kind of story. And there are similarities between that kind of story and the gospel also. Some people like to say that the gospel is a love story about a lover who pursues and chases and woos a bride into the wilderness who makes grand gestures and overcomes difficult obstacles and has trouble and reveals how deeply they are loved. So there's similarities to that story too. There's probably places that if we stretched it too far would make that seem a little weird and probably not appropriate. So maybe it's not a love story. Maybe it's not a hero's journey. But what kind of story is the gospel? What kind of narrative is it? I think to help us answer that question, another question could be helpful to ask, which is, how do we tell the gospel? I don't necessarily mean how do we evangelize, though that can be a helpful way of getting at this question too, but what images, stories, illustrations come to mind when you think about what the gospel is or how you would tell the gospel? Right, with the hero's journey, we can look at all of these different stories and be like, here the formula shows up again And again, so we know what kind of story it is. And the same with the love story. We can see the example showing up again and again, trace the rhythms and the narratives and say there's something similar in each of these. And same with our gospel stories. There's stories we tell that that contain the essence of the gospel underneath them, or at least that proclaim to contain the essence of the gospel underneath them. So what stories or illustrations come to mind when you think about the gospel. I read one this week that was kind of meant to be a parody of the gospel, but I think it speaks to how often we tell the gospel story. And it went like this. This is the gospel story illustration. It went like this. It said, There is this king in a faraway land, super wealthy, and he had a son, a good son, a kind son, but that son needed to be married. needed to have a bride. And so one day the king was looking out of his window, castles have windows, looking out of his window, and he sees in a field a beautiful woman who is destitute and in poverty. I have an idea. She'll marry my son. So he gets on his horse, rides out to meet the woman in the field, and he approaches her and he says, Hark, good lady. bear thee well, I have great news to proclaim to you. Today you're going to become a bride and you're going to inherit all of this wonderful wealth and I'm going to rescue you from poverty, but you have to decide in 24 hours that if you don't, I'm going to throw you in prison forever. See ya! And then he leaves and goes back to his home. And I think sometimes, though that story is a bit of a joke, it is often similar to the way that we tell the gospel story. There are similar images in there and similar illustrations that contain our understanding of what the gospel is. It is a king who is opulent and wealthy and generous, but also with an ultimatum, that if we don't choose it, we're going to suffer pretty severely. Now, this question matters. Both these questions matter. What kind of story is the gospel and how do we tell the story? Because the way we tell the gospel story will determine so much about how we see God, how we see the world, how we see ourselves. Is God a king who offers an ultimatum that if we don't choose it, we suffer? Is that the way this story works? Are we a destitute bride in the wilderness just waiting to be rescued? Is that how this story works and there's truth and there's beauty in all of these gospel stories that we've probably inherited and that we tell ourselves but is that the whole truth the only truth the way we tell the gospel and the kind of story the gospel is will shape so much about how we see God how we see ourselves how we see what God is doing in the world that's what the gospel is supposed to be the story of God and so it will shape how we think and how we operate. And this leads us to the third question for reflection before we enter into the story, is, how does Jesus tell the gospel story? And I, that can lead to other questions as well: Does it look like ours? When Jesus tells the gospel, when Jesus illustrates the gospel, when Jesus provides stories and metaphors and images to unpack what it is that he's doing in the world, what it is that he's about, when he tries to tell the story of God's work in the world, what stories does Jesus use? What illustrations does Jesus use? What metaphors and images become reoccurring themes in the language of Jesus? And importantly, does it look like our stories of the gospel? Are they similar Or is there a gulf between the two? Jesus loved to illustrate his work with stories. We call those stories parables, which is why on October 2nd we're going to do a whole class just exploring parables. Because these stories, they show up some 30 times in the Gospels, are like little windows into Jesus' mind and work and purpose in the world. Whenever somebody asks Jesus a difficult question, it's pretty common that the way he responds to that difficult question is to tell a story. Somebody comes with a challenge, someone comes with some incredulity about what Jesus is doing, why Jesus is with these people, why Jesus is over here, he often responds by telling a gospel story, a parable. And if you read these stories and if you pay attention to them, you'll start to notice That there is consistent themes. Jesus is a good storyteller, and so themes start to show up again and again. Imagery begins to show up again and again in these stories. Imagery of the kingdom, imagery of grace. And one of the most common themes, maybe the most common theme, is what I'm going to call homecoming. It's the theme of homecoming. Scholars will use other language for it. Some scholars will call these parables of lost things. Someone will call these parables of grace. Another scholar, Robert Capone, called them party parables, which I like quite a bit. But I'm going to call them homecoming parables or homecoming stories because I think that they speak to recovery of lost things. I think they speak to grace, and I think they certainly include parties. as all good things that Jesus does do. But I think there's also even more going on than recovery of lost things or grace or parties. There's a homecoming, a reunion, a reconciliation, a healing that is captured within these stories. And Jesus loves to tell stories of homecoming. The chapter that Meg read from today, Luke 15, contains Three stories, just in that chunk of scripture, three homecoming stories. And in chapter 14, the chapter right before, Jesus tells a homecoming story. So in two chapters, we get four homecoming stories. About the good news of things returning home and the kinds of parties that get thrown in their stead. Jesus loves these kinds of stories. And today, we're beginning a new series just looking at one of them. It's my favorite of all the homecoming parables. I think it's maybe the most substantial, the longest of all the homecoming parables. And I think that it is the best picture of the way Jesus chooses to articulate the gospel story. When Jesus is pressed, why do you do the things that you do? And what is it that you are accomplishing in the world? Jesus comes to this story. It's very famous. We read it today. It's the parable of, of the prodigal sons, often referred to as the parable of the prodigal son. But for our purposes, we're going to call it the parable of the prodigal sons. And we're going to spend the next couple of weeks in this parable looking at the different characters, the younger son, the older brother, the father, the party itself. And in the middle of it, we're going to be broken up by having people in the community share their own stories. That's next week, which I'm really excited about. And as we look at this story, we're going to see Jesus telling the gospel. And the question that I hope we continue to ask throughout it is, does this version of the gospel look like the ones we tell ourselves? Does it look like the gospel we tell others? Does it look like the one that we believe? And so today we're going to dive in and begin looking at the story with the character of the younger brother. Before we look at him, though, I think it's important just to name the context that this parable takes place within. So in verse 1 and 2 of Luke 15, we get that context. The text says this, All the tax collectors and sinners were gathering around Jesus to listen to him. The Pharisees and the legal experts were there, and they were grumbling, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So in this moment, Jesus is surrounded by two groups of people. On the one hand, you have religious leaders, Pharisees, scholars, and in all senses of the cultural moment, they are the upstanding members of society. These are the people that are respected. They're the ones who come from good families, the ones who have made right decisions in their life, the ones who are hailed and looked at as role models in the culture around them. And they are grumbling because Jesus is eating with what is referred to in this passage as sinners. And sinners in this moment is a pejorative title used to talk about a very specific class of people in society. Theologically, the Bible says that everybody's a sinner. So when it's used in this kind of way, it's used to demarcate folks who have done something or experienced something that isolates them that presses them to the margins, that names them anathema, that puts a scarlet letter on them and casts them out of society. And Jesus is with both of these groups of people, as he often is, and it's causing tension. And the tension is social, it's hierarchical, it's religious, but there is also at the heart of this tension a real perceived cost. And I think it's important to name that that if you're a religious leader in this setting, you're leading a people group who is under the domination of Rome. Israel has been conquered by Rome. They've been conquered by many nations up to this point. And now the, the most recent controlling empire is Rome. And you believe that's happened because this group of people that you've named sinners, you believe have not followed the way of God. And so you believe that the cost that you are bearing has to be on them, that it's their fault, that they've done this to you, that if they would just follow the Torah, if they would just be true to Israel, if they would just be true to God, then Rome couldn't conquer. The presence of the Lord would still be with you. The temple would still be established, like this nation would still be whole. So there's this perceived cost at the heart of the tension that is in this story And I think that's interesting to think about because our society today is not as easily stratified as ancient Israel. But there is definitely people in our lives that we believe have cost us something. As we look at the story of the prodigal sons, I think it is really easy for us to resonate, at least this is me personally, it's very easy for me to resonate with the story of the younger brother. And I think we are all invited to resonate with the story of the younger brother, the prodigal who leaves and is rescued and called and celebrated home. But I think it is also important to recognize that we can be any of the characters in this story. We can be the lost younger brother who leaves home. We can be the older brother who does not want the younger to come back. And the spiritual writer Henry Nouwen would say that when we grow up, we become more like the father who loves them both. And so as we look at the story of the younger brother, I think it's important to say, like, how have we cost those around us? But also, who is it that has cost us something that we would be hesitant to celebrate? I've been thinking about this all week because last week, last week, someone did something. This is going to be so cryptic, but I feel like it's a helpful illustration. Someone did something, someone that I care about very much did something that felt so mean to me. I could just, I can't, I know that's not the motivation. I know that's not the narrative they told themselves. But you know, like when you experience something and you're like, this is cruel. This was, that, that was, all this was was cruel. And it could have cost us a ton of money. And it did cost us a ton of time. So there was a real cost to the enduring of this gesture that felt mean to me. Still doing it. Still working on it. And it wasn't just me. Multiple people had to be involved in the scenario because of what happened. And as I was reflecting on this text, all I could think about is I was like, is that my younger brother in this moment? Someone who's done something that I believe is so mean, that makes me so angry. I think even legitimately and justifiably mad. I think what they did was wrong. And it's cost me, and it's now forcing us to work hard and do all of these things. Is this person my younger brother? I always want to be the younger brother, but am I now the older Or the father who has to decide what to do with the person who has cost me so much? Who is the younger brother or the older brother in your life? Who has cost you something? Because it's in this cost and into this loss that Jesus steps and begins to tell the parable. Jesus sets up the tension in verse 11 as he enters into the story. It says this, Jesus Said a certain man had two sons. The younger of the sons said to his father, Father, give me my share of the inheritance. This is a wild thing to ask. We've talked about this before. This is a wild thing to ask in any era, but especially in the ancient world. Because for a young son to come to his dad and ask for the inheritance is in effect to say, Hey, old man, it would be better if you were dead. So give me your money. And let me go. This is how I feel about our relationship. I don't want you alive. I don't want your relationship in me. I don't want to be connected to you. Give me your money. I would like to live as though you were dead now. It's like a deeply offensive thing. It's a deeply cruel thing to say. But it would also be such an intense cost to bear because inheritance in the ancient world is not money sitting in a bank, it's land property. It's sheep and goats and other things that you do with agrarian life. It's vineyards. It's like the provision of the family. So for this young son to come to his father and demand his inheritance, he's saying, give me the land that you live on. Let me live as though you were dead. Let me take what provides for you. Let me take what's provided for me. Let me take what provides for my older brother. Let me cut it in thirds. Give me what is mine, and let me go. It's a cruel thing to do. It's a heartless thing to do, it feels like. And it's also possibly, under the ancient scriptures, an illegal thing to do. In Leviticus 25, the Torah tells us that wealth is supposed to stay in Israel. Now, this is really important in the ancient context because Israel is supposed to have these policies of debt forgiveness. So every seven years, all debt is forgiven. And every 50 years, all land, this is a crazy thing, all land that was purchased or sold goes back to its original owner. And the idea is that there could be no form of generational poverty that continues to exist in Israel. Because say your father or your grandfather made poor decisions, lost the land, eventually it would return back to the family of origin. So this principle is supposed to be built into the nation of Israel, and so they are not allowed to sell land outside of Israel. Because all of a sudden, the rhythms and cycles of debt forgiveness and redemption, as it's called, can't happen anymore. Because why would someone who's outside of Israel want to participate in that kind of redemption? There's no reason to hold them to it. You can't expect them to. So you're not allowed to sell it outside of Israel. And it seems like from this text— that the young son does just that. Gets the money and then sells it outside of Israel. So what he's done is cruel. What he's done endures great cost against the father. And what he's done is probably illegal under the Old Testament law. So what is the father supposed to do? Well, what he should do, according to the Old Testament, is stone him. It's a family-friendly story. Deuteronomy 21, verse 18 through 21, that's exactly what the text says, that if a son like this is insolent and disobedient, you take that son to the elders. If he's still insolent and disobedient, you just do what you do with disobedient kids, and you kill him right there. (laughs) That's what everybody would be expecting to happen in this story. That's what the law tells the father to do. Now just Get your mind into this moment. It's a wild thing that Jesus does. So everybody in this moment knows the Torah. Everyone who is listening is like, the father's going to kill the son. That's going to be the end of the story. That's the good news for all of us. And then what does the father do? Then the father divided his estate between them. What? What? That's crazy. He has the legal right to kill his son, or at the very least, like I think in my own mind, at the very least, I don't want to kill my son. That feels too far, but like at the very least, you would take him and maybe like lock him in the house for a bit. Be like, just you know, I'm just going to lock him down until he gets like a little sense. He grows up a little bit and is like, that's a bad decision, and then I'll let him out. It'll be totally fine. But he doesn't. He divides his estate. The father gives to the son the thing he asks for, the father consents to his son's painful and hurtful demands and he lets him go. And I think that is worth paying attention to that when Jesus tells a story about the Father, who in this moment is a representation of God, when Jesus tells a story about God, it is of a God who does not coerce, does not force, does not control the actions of his disobedient Son, but instead, in love, consents to it. A wild thing. God's love does not coerce in Jesus' understanding. Theologian Bradley Jersick has a really good way of saying it. I like this quote. He says, Christ rules through love rather than coercion, through persuasion rather than force, through revelation rather than domination. This is always true of the way that we see God operate. Maybe the most archetypal story ever of the prodigal son is actually the story of Adam and Eve. That whole story is a story of choice, of consent. God does not force them to do anything. To stay, to leave, to eat, to not eat. Instead, God open-handedly allows them to make their own decisions. Because coercion and control do not curate love. And so the father consents. Pained and heartbroken, most certainly. Wronged, yes. But in love, the father consents to the desires, will, and actions of his son. He gives to the son, to humanity, to us, what it is that we ask for. And so the son leaves. So soon afterward, the son gathered everything together and he took a trip to a far away land. And there he wasted his wealth through extravagant living. When he had used up his resources, a severe food shortage arose in the country and he began to be in need. So he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the fields to feed the pigs. We don't know how long the young son is gone. Or how long it took to spend his inheritance. And I think that's an interesting gap that Jesus leaves in this text. Maybe a gap for our own stories. We don't know. It's gone months? A year? Years? However long it takes to spend his money. And at some point in that journey, a famine begins to hit. Things get tight and difficult, and the young son finds himself in a difficult and precarious position. I think this short description of what happens to the young son is also a deeply powerful revelation in terms of how Jesus thinks, and how Jesus seems to understand what sin is and what its consequences are. I think sometimes our gospel stories can ride over our understanding or our definition of sin, but for Jesus— Sin seems to be the decisions and the pain of dislocation. What happens to us in homelessness? Here's what I mean by that. The son chooses to leave his father's house. He's not forced to leave. He's not required to leave. He chooses to leave. His father gives him the inheritance And the son leaves, and he begins to spend the inheritance, making a world of his own. And that's probably really great for a while. But eventually, the money runs out, and the son still lives in the world of his own making. And oftentimes, this is the way the Bible talks about sin or the consequences of sin. It is the decisions that we make, and it is living in the world of our own making. setting out on our own, and then living in our own. It's the feelings and the pain of dislocation. It's what happens when the money eventually runs out, and in desperation, we make desperate gambles for survival. The young son does things he would never have normally done, hiring himself out to feed pigs. Pigs. I think this is often the way Scripture understands what life away from God is like. It's not violation of an arbitrary law. It is the pain and trauma and difficulty of being dislocated, of being exiled, of being on our own, of being in the wild. And it is the habits and the behaviors and the coping skills that we learn in order to be in the wild, to survive life in scarcity and in famine. It's choosing to feed the pigs because there doesn't feel like there's another option in scarcity. The spiritual writer Henry Nowen, in his own book on the prodigal son, has a very beautiful way of describing it. He says this, The farther I run from the place where God dwells, the less I am able to hear the voice that calls me the beloved. And the less I hear that voice, the more entangled I become in the manipulations and power games of the world. We all have those false stories that whisper to us, as Henry Nouwen says. These are those stories that tell us what we need to do to be long, to be loved, to be whole, to be accepted, to be complete, to be successful. These stories are so powerfully motivating and they will lead us to desperate gambles for survival in order to achieve the things that we need. And I wonder if we see this in the younger brother at all. This is a bit of an inference, but in verse 16 we get to the end of his rope, the spiral of dark stories and of desperation. And it says this, he longed to eat his fill from what the pigs ate, but no one gave him anything. And so when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired hands have more than enough food? But I'm starving to death. So I will get up and I will go to my father and say to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. Take me as one of your hired hands. I think this moment is so interesting. And again, this is inference. This is me, my opinion, okay? But it is so interesting what the young son remembers in this moment of desperation. Because nowhere in this text has the father said, you need to work for food. What the young son remembers is that his father is wealthy, that he has servants, and that possibly he could hire himself out to earn some food. But at no point has that been the reflection of the father to the son. And so I begin to wonder, is that his false narrative that begins to seep into him as he's far away from the place that calls him beloved? I think as often happens to us that the further and further away we get, or the more desperate life gets, the more our vision of God becomes reflections of our own experience, our own pain, our own difficulties, maybe even our own perception of ourself. So we begin to imagine that, yeah, maybe God would welcome us back, but we'd have to do some things to get there. Or maybe God would provide, but we're going to have to work pretty hard to get there. Maybe I can be fed, but not like a son, not at the table, the morsels that he gives to the servants and the pigs. Maybe that can be mine too if I work hard enough, if I go back. I think that's a false story, the young son believes about his father. Because at no moment in the text does that seem to be the reflection of the father. And I think that's true because I just... I think this is true because I feel like I see it happen in myself and in others pretty consistently. That the farther we run from God, the more false stories get written over God and over ourselves. And it seems the lie that estranges us from God, that leads us to desperation, is often a lie about God. We see it in the garden, the prototypical prodigal story. Maybe we see it here, and we see it in our own lives. And I think this has convinced me at some level that one of the very chief ends of the gospel story is very simply to reveal to us what God is like. Because it is really easy for us to believe a false story. It leads us further and further away in fear and desperation. And so the gospel reveals who God is and what God is like, unraveling, upending that story so we can see the truth, which we'll get to in just a moment. Whether his story is false or not, eventually life gets very difficult for the younger son and he reaches that moment where he says, It would be better for me to go home than to eat this food here. Even if his father's a taskmaster, it would be better than this, which I think some of us have felt that experience on our own. So he heads home. And as he goes, you see him in this moment practicing his apology speech saying, I've sinned against you. I've sinned against heaven. I don't deserve to be your son. Please take me as your hired servant. And I always imagined this moment as the son's like, repentance journey. Right? He's like, literally leaving one place, and he is returning home. Which, if you'd ask me for a definition of what repentance is, I'd probably say, going home. So I've always kind of imagined that this was a repentance story. And then I was talking to Heather this week, and she pointed out something that has like, haunted me all week that I think is very fascinating. She just said this, that if you look at the younger son's stated motivation, It's provision, not relationship. At no moment, this is fascinating. At no moment does the younger son be like, "I miss my dad." Wonder what my older brother is doing. No, he says he's like, "I'm hungry," and I think it would be time to go home. That's all he says. Now we don't know his heart. That is like the most Christian thing I've ever said. We don't (laughs) bless his heart. We don't know it. But what the text says is that his longing, his motivation, is provision. He does not say he misses his dad. He does not say he misses his father. And in fact, there is a demand and possibly a level of entitlement to the request that the younger son makes of the father. He goes back, still assuming that his dad will provide for him. Hire me as one of your servants. You've already given a lot. Maybe you should give a little more. Now we don't know. We don't know if that's what he's thinking. And I think just the more that I've reflected on that, as Heather pointed it out, that feels like a gap that Jesus left for us. It's a place that we can maybe find ourselves in this story. Maybe it is entitlement. Maybe it's desperation. Maybe it's true repentance. It kind of feels like it could be either of those things or all three of those things. It's a gap in which we can find ourselves. And I think it's also important to point out it doesn't seem to matter to the father at all. The father does not know the son's stated motivations for coming home, if it's provision or relationship. The text says all the father knows is that that's my boy on the road. As the son begins to head home, this is what the text says in verse 20. While the son was still a long way off, his father saw him and was moved with compassion. So he ran to him, hugged him, and kissed him. Then his son began to say, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. But the father said, Shh, get the servants. Quickly bring out the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Fetch the fattened calf. Start the barbecue because we are going to begin to celebrate. The father sees the younger son. He runs towards him. He greets him. And as the younger brother begins his spiel, the father doesn't even give him time to say it. He orders him fine clothing, a ring for his finger, which is a symbol in the ancient world of full restoration. It's like the sigil of a house. You are now my son again. And he shouts out to the neighbors, because this son of mine was dead, he has come back to life. He was lost and he is now found. And so they begin to celebrate. This is easily one of the most beautiful moments in all the Bible. And in the theological world, you might be familiar with this term, but we have a a term to describe what is happening in this moment, this piece of the gospel story. And it's the word atonement. Sometimes the word atonement is used to describe the work of the cross. And sometimes the words that will latch on to atonement is words like reparation, paying for sins, Words like covering sin. Sometimes that's how it's pictured in the Old Testament. Sometimes we'll describe it as paying a debt. And all these words help us understand what's happening in atonement. But it is interesting that when Jesus describes his own work, what he's here to do, when he chooses to describe atonement, he talks about a father who so loved his lost son that he would absorb whatever wasted inheritance there was. That he would absorb whatever shame came from the community upon him, that he would absorb his own rejection. Having been rejected as a father, having been rejected as a parent, having been rejected as a homemaker, that he would absorb his own rejection, the pain of his own loss in order to unite and restore his son. The father does not work, speak a word of shame or a word of judgment over his son, but he speaks a word of welcome, of reunion, of restoration, of homecoming. Missio, this is the gospel, the great revelation of God to the world. And we see it again And again in the Bible. This story is my favorite description of it, but we see it over and over again. We see it as God searches for lost coins or in stories of wandering after lost sheep. We see it in stories of God selling himself to buy a field of value or giving everything to rescue a vineyard. We see it in every moment, every iteration in which Jesus speaks and talks. It is always about God giving up whatever it costs to reunite Restore and welcome lost sons. Now, let me ask you a question as we close. Is that the story you tell yourself about the gospel? Does your gospel look like Jesus's? Maybe more poignantly, does your gospel look like Jesus? Does it look like a father who would absorb wasted inheritance for the sake of reunion? Does it look like restoration? Does it look like an unexpected party? Does your gospel story look like Jesus in the stories that he tells? Would you hold that question? And as we worship and gather together, would you Bring that question to this table. We gather every single week at this table because it is the place in which we practice our own welcome. Well we remember that God has thrown a party to celebrate our homecoming. Remember that God has absorbed wasted inheritance just to be with us. Where we remember that reunion is the point. And that's true for us if this is our first time gathering at this table or if it's the millionth time gathering at the table. The story stays the same. And the party is always available. So, Missy, would you take that question? What gospel story do you tell yourself? And would you bring it here? Let's pray. God, thank you for your story the good news that reveals to us who you really are and what you are really like. You are a father who has been waiting for us. Not to shame us, not to judge us. You don't chase us into the fields to remind us of our failures, but you longingly wait to be reunited. You're so eager to be in our presence that you don't even let us finish our apology spiel before you cover us in goodness and restoration. God, would that story just seep into our very beings today? As we gather at this table, as we sing, in all of these moments, would that story become true and real or renewed to us today? And would it send us from this place in the power and the freedom of unrelenting love? God, we pray these things. Amen.